0: Okay, we are in chapter 18 of Till We Have Faces. Elizabeth, that couch is completely open if you prefer that. Next day, I went as soon as I was risen to the bedchamber to take my first look at the king. For indeed no lover nor doctor ever watched each change of a sick man's breath and pulse so closely as I. While I was still at his bedside, I could see no difference in him. In came Redival, all in a flurry, and her face blubbered. And, oh, Orwell, she said, is the king dying? And what was going on all last night? And who's the young stranger? They say he's a wonderful, handsome man, and looks as brave as a lion. Is he a prince? And, oh, sister, what will happen to us if the king dies? I shall be queen, Redival. Your treatment shall be according to your behavior. Almost before the words were out of my mouth, she was fawning upon me and kissing my hand and wishing me joy and saying she had always loved me better than anyone in the world. It sickened me. None of the slaves would cringe to me like that. Even when I was angry and they feared me, all knew better than to put on a beggar's wine There's nothing moves my pity less. Don't be a fool, Reddivale, said I, shoving her away from my hand. I'm not going to kill you. But if you put your nose out of the house without my leave, I'll have you whipped. Now be off. At the door she turned and said, But you'll get me a husband, Queen, won't you? Yes, probably two, said I, "I of a dozen sons of kings hanging in my wardrobe. But Go. Then came the fox, who looked at the king, muttered, he might last for days yet, and then said, Daughter, I did badly last night. I think this offer to fight the prince yourself is foolish and, what's more, unseemly. But I was wrong to weep and beg and try to force you by your love. Love is not a thing to be so used. He broke off because just then Bardia came to the door. Here's a herald back from Argan already, queen, he said. Our man met the prince, curse his insolence, a great deal nearer than ten miles. We went into the pillar room. My father's eyes followed me terribly and had the herald in. He was a great, tall man, dressed as fine as a peacock. His message, stripped of many high words, was that his master accepted the combat, but he said his sword should not be stained with woman's blood, so he'd bring a rope with him to hang me when he disarmed me. That's a weapon in which I profess no skill," said I, and therefore it's barely justice that your master should bring it. But then he's older than I. His first battle was, I think, long ago, so we'll concede it to make up for his years. I can't say that to the Prince-Queen, said the Herald. Then I thought I'd done enough. I knew others would hear my jibe, even if Argan didn't and we went to orderly work on all the conditions of the fight and the hundred small things that had to be agreed on. It was the best part of an hour before the herald was gone. The fox, I could see, was in great pain while all these provisions were being made, the thing growing more real and more irrevocable at each word. I was mostly the queen now, but Oral would whisper a cold word in the queen's ear at times. After that came Arnhem and even before he spoke we knew the old priest was dead, and Arnhem had succeeded him. He wore the skins and the bladders, the bird mask hung at his chest. The sight of all that gave me me a sudden shock, like a vile dream, forgotten on waking, but suddenly remembered at noon. But my second glance braced me. He would never be terrible like the old priest. He was only Arnhem, with whom I had driven a very good bargain yesterday, there was no feeling that Ungut came into the room with him, and that started strange thoughts in my mind. But I had no time to follow them. Arnhem and the fox went to the bedchamber and fell into to talk about the king's condition. The two seemed to understand each other well, and Bardia beckoned me out of the room. We went out by the little eastern door where the fox and I had gone on the morning psyche was born, and there paced up and down between the herb beds while we talked. Now, Queen, said he, this is your first battle. And you doubt my courage? Not your courage to be killed, Queen, but you've never killed. This must be a killing matter. What then? Why, just this. (coughs) Women and boys talk easily about killing a man. Yet, believe me, it's a hard thing to do. I mean, the first time. There's something in a man that goes against it. You think I'd pity him? I don't know if it's pity that the first time I did it, it was the hardest thing in the world to make my own hand plunge the sword into all that live flesh. But you did. Yes, my enemy was a bugler. But how if he'd been quick? That's the danger, you see. There's a moment when one pause, the fifth part of the time it takes to wink your eye, may lose a chance. And it may be your only chance, and then you've lost the battle. "'I don't think my hand would delay, Bardia,' said I. "'I was trying to test it in my mind. "'I pictured my father, well again, "'and coming at me in one of his old rages. "'I felt sure my hand would not fail me to stab him. "'It had not failed when I stabbed myself.' "'We'll hope not,' said Bardia. "'But you must go through the exercise. i make all the recruits do it.' "'The exercise?' "'Yes, you know they're to kill a pig this morning. "'You must be the butcher, Queen.' I saw in a flash that if I shrank from this, there would be at once be at once less queen and more oral in me. I am ready, said I. I understood the work pretty well, for, of course, we had seen the slaughtering of beasts ever since we were children. Redival had always watched and always screamed. I had watched less often and held my tongue. So now I went and killed my pig. We kill pigs without sacrifice, For these beasts are an abomination to Ungit. There is a sacred story that explains why. And I swore that if I came back alive from the combat, Bardia and the fox and Trinia and I should eat the choicest parts of it for our supper. Then, when I had taken off my butcher's apron and washed, I went back to the pillar room, for I thought of something that must be done, now that my life might be only two days. The fox was already there. I called Bardia and Arnhem for witnesses, and declared the fox free. Next moment I was plunged in despair. I cannot now understand how I had been so blind as not to foresee it. My only thought had been to save him from being mocked and neglected, perhaps sold by Redival, if I were dead. But now, as soon as the other two were done wishing him joy and (coughs) kissing him on the cheeks, it all broke on me. You'll be a loss to our councils. There are many in Gloam who'll be sorry to see you go. Don't make your journey in winter. What were they saying? Grandfather, I cried. No queen now, all Orwell, even all child. Do they mean you'll leave me? Go away. The fox raised towards me, a face full of infinite trouble, twitching. Free, he muttered. You mean I could? I can. It wouldn't matter much, even if I died on the way. Not if I could get down to the sea. There'd be tunnies, <coughs> olives. No, it'd be too early in the year for olives but the smell of the harbors and walking about the market talking. Real talk, but you don't know. This is all foolishness. None of you know. I should be thanking your daughter, for, but if ever you love me, don't speak to me now. Tomorrow. Let me go. He pulled his cloak over his head and groped his way out of the room. And now this game of queenship, which had buoyed me up and kept me busy ever since I woke that morning, failed me utterly. We had made all our preparations for combat. There was the rest of the day, and the whole of the next, to wait, and hanging over it this new desolation, that if I lived I might have to live without the fox. <coughs> I went out into the gardens. I would not go up to that plot beyond behind the pear trees. That was where he and Psyche and I had often been happiest. I wandered miserably out on the other side, on the west of the apple orchard, till the cold drove me in. It was a bitter, black frost that day, with no sun. I am both ashamed and afraid to revive, by writing of them, the thoughts I had. In my ignorance, I could not understand the strength of the desire which must be drawing my old master to his own land. I had lived in one place all my life. Everything in Gloan was to me stale, common, and taken for granted, even filled with memories of dread, sorrow, and humiliation. I had no notion how the remembered home looks to an exile. It embittered me that the fox should even desire to leave me. He had been the central pillar of my whole life, something, I thought, as sure and established, and indeed as little thanked as sunrise and the mere earth. In my folly, I had thought, I was to him as he was to me. Fool, said I to myself, have you not yet learned that you are that to no one? What are you to Bardia? as much, perhaps, as the old king was. His heart lies at home with his wife and her brats. If you mattered to him, he'd never have let you fight. What are you to the fox? His heart was always in the Greek lands. You were maybe the solace of his captivity. They say a prisoner will tame a rat. He comes to love the rat after a fashion, but throw the door open, strike off his fetters, and how much he'll care for the rat then. And yet how could he leave us after so much love? I saw him again with Psyche on his knees, prettier than Aphrodite, he had said. Yes, but that was Psyche, said my heart. If she were still with us, he would stay. It was Psyche he loved, never me. I knew while I said it that it was false, yet I would not or could not put it out of my head. But the fox sought me out before I slept, his face very gray and his manner very quiet, but that he did not limp. You would have thought he had been in the hands of the torturers. Wish me well, daughter, he said, for I have won the battle. What's best for his fellows must be best for a man. I am but a limb of the whole and must work in the socket where I'm put. I'll stay. And, oh, grandfather, said I, and wept. Peace, peace, he said, embracing me. What would I have done in Greece? My father is dead. My sons have no doubt forgotten me. My daughter, should I not only... I, should I not be only a trouble, a dream strayed into daylight, as the verse says? Anyhow, it's a long journey and beset with dangers. I might never have reached the sea. And so he went on, making little of his deed, as if he feared I would dissuade him from it. But I, with my face on his breast, felt only the joy. I went to look at my father many times that day, but could see no change in him. That night I slept ill. It was not fear of the combat, but a restlessness that came from the manifold changes which the gods were sending upon me. The old priest's death by itself would have been a matter for a week's thought. I had hoped it before, and then, if he had died, it might have saved Psyche, but never really reckoned to see him go more than to wake one morning and find the grey mountain gone. The freeing of the fox, though I had done it myself, felt to me like another impossible change. It was as if my father's sickness had drawn away some prop, and the whole world, all the world I knew, had fallen to pieces. I was journeying into a strange new land. It was so new and so strange that I could not, that night, even feel my great sorrow. This astonished me. One part of me made to snatch that sorrow back. It said, Aura will die if she ceases to love Psyche. But the other said, Let Aura will die. She would never have made a queen. The last day, the eve of the battle, shows like a dream. Every hour made it more unbelievable. The noise and fame of my combat had got abroad. It was no part of our policy to be secret. And there were crowds of the common people at the palace gates. Though I valued their favor no more than it deserved, I remembered how they'd turned against Psyche. Yet, willy-nilly, their cheering quickened my pulse, and set a kind of madness into my brain. Some of the better sort, lords and elders, came to wait upon me. They all accepted me for queen, and I spoke little, but I think well. Bardia and the fox praised it, and I watched their eyes staring at my veil, manifestly wondering what it hid. Then I went to Prince Trinia in the tower room and told him we'd found a champion. I did not say whom. To fight for him, and how he would be brought in honorable custody to see the fight. Though this must have been uneasy news for him, he was too just a man not to see that we were using him as well as our weakness would bear. When I called for wine that we might drink, to- then I called for wine that we might drink together. But when the door opened, this angered me for the moment. Instead of my father's butler, it was Redival, who came in bearing the flagon and the cup. I was a fool not to have foreseen it. I knew her well enough to guess that once there was a strange man in the house, she'd eat her way through stone walls in order to be seen. Yet even I was astonished to see what a meek, shy, modest, dutiful younger sister, perhaps even a somewhat downtrodden and spirit-broken sister. She could make herself carrying that wine with her downcast eyes, which missed missed nothing from Trunia's bandaged foot to the hair of his head and her child's gravity. Who's that, Beauty? said Trinia as soon as she was gone. That's my sister, the Princess Redival, said I. Gloam is a rose garden even in winter, said he. But why, cruel queen, do you hide your own face? If you become better known to my sister, she'll doubtless tell you, (coughs) said I more sharply than I had intended. Why, that might be, said the Prince, if your champion wins tomorrow. Otherwise, death's my wife. But if I live, Queen, I wouldn't let this friendship between our houses die away. Why should I not marry into your line? Perhaps yourself, Queen? There's no room for two on my throne, Prince. Your sister, then? It was, of course, an offer to be seized. Yet for a moment, saying yes to it, irked me. Most likely because I thought this Prince twenty times too good for her. For all I can see, said I, this marriage can be made. I must speak to my wise men first, for my... Own part, I like it well. The day ended more strangely than it began. Bardia had had me into the quarters for my last practice. There's an old fault of yours, Queen, he said, in the faint reverse. I think we've conquered it, but I must see you perfect. We went at it for a half an hour, and when we stopped to breathe, he said, That's as perfect as skill can go. It's my belief that if you and I were to fight with sharps, you'd kill me. But there are... Two things more to say. This first. If it should happen, Queen, and most likely it won't happen to you because of your divine blood, but if it should happen that when your cloak's off and the crowd's hushed and you're walking out into the empty space to meet your man, if you should then feel fear, never heed it. We've all felt it at our first fight. I feel it myself before every fight. And the second's this. This hauberk you've been wearing is excellent for weight and fit. But it's a poor thing to look at. A trace of gilding would suit a queen and a champion better. Let's see what the bedchamber has. I have said before that the king kept all manner of arms and armor in there. So in we went. The fox was sitting by the bedside. Why or with what thoughts, I don't know. It was not possible he should love his old master. Still no change, he said. Bardia and I fell to rummaging through among the mail. And soon disputing, for I thought I'd be safer and more limber in the chainmail shirt, which I knew which I knew than in any other, and he kept saying, "But wait, wait, now, here's a better and it was when we were most busied with the fox's voice from behind us, said, "It's finished." We turned and looked the thing on the bed, which had been half alive for so long, was dead, had died if he understood it. "'seeing a girl ransacking his armory. (laughs) "'Peace be upon him,' said Baudio. "'We'll be done here very shortly. "'Then the women can come and wash the body.' "'We turned again at once to settle the matter of the hauberks. "'And so the thing that I had thought of for so many years "'at last slipped by in a huddle of business "'which was at that moment of more consequence. "'An hour later, when I looked back, it astonished me. "'Yet I have often noticed since how much less stir nearly everyone's death makes than you might expect. Men better loved and more worth loving than my father go down making only a small eddy. I kept to my old hauberk, but we told the armorer to scour it well so that it might pass for silver. Chapter 19 On a great day, the thing that makes it great may fill the least part of it, as a meal takes little time to eat, but the killing... Baking, dressing, and the swilling and scraping after it take long enough. My fight with the prince took about the sixth part of an hour, yet the business about it more than twelve. First of all, now that the fox was a freeman and the queen's lantern, so we called it, though my father had let the office sleep, I would have him at the fight and splendidly dressed. But you never had a more tr- more trouble with a peevish girl going to her first feast. He said all barbarians' clothes were barbarous, and the finer the worse. He would go in his old moth-eaten gown, and when we had brought him into some kind of order, then Bardia wanted me to fight without my veil. He thought it would blind me, and did not know how, how it could well be worn either over or under my helmet. But I refused altogether to fight bare face. In the end, i had Puby to stitch me up a hood or mask of fine stuff but such as could not be seen through it had two eye holes and covered the whole helmet all this was needless for i had fought bardia himself in my old veil a dozen times but the mask made me look very dreadful as a ghost might look if he's the coward they make of him said bardia that'll cool his stomach And then we had to start very early, it seemed, for the crowd in the streets would make us ride slowly. So we had Trinia down, and we're all presently on horseback. There was some talk of dressing him fine, too, but he refused this. "'Whether your champion kills or is killed,' he said. "'I'll fare no better in purple than in my old battle order.' "'But where is your champion, Queen?' "'You shall see when we come to the field, Prince,' said I. Trinia had started when he first saw me shrouded like a ghost, Neither throat nor helmet to be seen, but two eye holes on a white hummock scarecrow, or leper. I thought his starting boded well how it would taste to Argan. Several lords and elders waited for us at the gate to bring us through the city. It's easy to guess what I was thinking. So Psyche had gone out that day to heal the people, and so she had gone out that other day to be offered to the brute. Perhaps, thought I, this is what the god meant when he said, You also shall be psyche. I also might be an offering. That was a good, firm thought to lay hold of, but the thing was so near now that I could could think very little of my own death or life. With all those eyes upon me, my only care was to make a brave show, both now and in the fight. I'd have given ten talents to any prophet who would have foretold me that I'd fight well for five minutes and then be killed. The Lords who rode nearest me were very grave, I suppose, and indeed one or two confessed as much to me afterwards when they had come to, when I had come came to know them. They thought Argan would soon have me disarmed, and that my mad challenge was as good a way as any of getting him and Trinia both out of our country. But if the Lords were glum, the common people in the streets were huzzaing and throwing caps in the air. It would have puffed me up if I had not looked in their faces. There I could read their mind easily enough. Neither I nor Gloam was in their thoughts. Any fight was a free show for them, and a fight of a woman with a man better still because of an oddity, as those who can't tell one tune from another will crowd to hear the harp if a man plays it with his toes. When at last we got down to the open field by the river, there had to be more delays. Arnon was there in his bird mask, and there was a bull to be sacrificed so well the gods have wound themselves into our affairs that nothing could be done, but they have had have, have their bit. And opposite us, on the far side of the field, were the horsemen of Fars, and Argan sitting on his horse in the midst of them. It was the strangest thing in the world to look upon a man, a man like any other man, and think that one of us presently would kill the other. Kill. It seemed like a word I'd never spoken before. He was a man with straw-colored hair and beard, thin, yet somehow bloated, with pouting lips a very unpleasing person. Then he and I dismounted and came close, and each had to taste a tiny morsel of the bull's flesh and take oaths on behalf of our peoples that all the agreements would be kept. And now, I thought surely now they'd let us begin, There was a pale white sun in a gray sky that day with a biting wind. Do they want us to freeze before we fought, I thought? But now the people had to be pressed back with the butt ends of spears, and the field cleared, and Bardia must go across and whisper something to Argan's chief man, and both of them must go and whisper to Arnhem, and Argan's trumpeter and mine must be placed side by side. Now, Queen, said Bardia suddenly, when I had half despaired of ever getting to the end of the preparations— The gods guard you. The fox was standing with his face set like iron. He would have wept if he had tried to speak. I saw a great shock of surprise come over Trunia, and I never blamed him for turning pale. (coughs) When I flung off my cloak, drew my sword, and stepped out into the open grass. The men from Fars roared with laughter. Our mob cheered. Argon was within ten paces of me, then five, then we were at it. I know he began despising me. There was a lazy insolence in his first passes, but I took the skin off his knuckles with one lucky stroke and maybe numbed his hand a little, and that brought him to his senses. Though my eye never left his sword, yet somehow saw his face as well. Crosspatch, thought I. He had a puckered brow and a sort of blackerty fretfulness about his lip, which perhaps already masked some fear. For my part, I felt no fear, because now that we are really at it, I did not believe in the combat at all. It was so like all my sham fights with Bardia, the same strokes, feints, deadlocks. Even the blood on his knuckles made no difference. A blunt sword or the flat of a sword could have done as much. You, the Greek for whom I write, may never have fought, or if you did, you fought most likely as a hoplite. Unless I were with you and had a sword, or at least a stick in my hand, I could not make you understand the course of it. I soon felt sure... He could not kill me. But I was less sure that I could kill him. I was very afraid lest the tangle should last too long and his greater strength would grind me down. What I shall remember forever is the change that presently came over his face. It was to me an utter astonishment. I did not understand it. I should now. I have since seen the faces of other men as they begin to believe this is death. You will know it if you have se- ever seen it life more alive than ever, a raging, tortured intensity of life. Then he made his first bad mistake, and I missed my chance. It seemed a long time, it was a few minutes, really, before he made it again. That time I was ready for it. I gave the straight thrust and then, all in one motion, wheeled my sword round and cut him deeply in the inner leg, where no surgery will stop the bleeding. I jumped back, of course, lest his fall should bear me down with him, so my first man-killing splattered me less than my first pig-killing. People ran to him, but there was no possibility of saving his life. The shouting of the mob dinned in my ears, sounding strange as all things sound when you're in your helmet. I was scarcely out of breath even. Most of my bouts with Bardia had been far longer, yet I felt of a sudden very weak and my legs were shaking, and I felt myself changed too as if something had been taken away from me. I have often wondered if women feel like that when they lose their virginity. Bardia, the fox close behind him, came running up to me with tears in his eyes and joy all over his face. Blessed, blessed, he cried, Queen, Warrior, my best scholar. Gods, how prettily you did it. A stroke to remember all one's days. And he raised my left hand to his lips. I wept hard and kept my head well down so that he should not see the tears dropping from under the mask. But long before I had my voice back, they were all about me, Trunia still on horseback because he could not walk, with praises and thanks till I was almost pestered with it, though a little sweet, sharp prickle of pride thrust up inside me. There was no peace. I must speak to the people and to the men of Fars. I must, it seemed, to a score of things, and I thought, oh, for that bowl of milk drunk alone in the cool dairy, the first day I ever used a sword. As soon as I had any voice, I called for my horse, mounted, brought it alongside Twinnia's, and held out my hand to him. Thus we rode forward a few paces and faced the horsemen of Fars. Strangers, said I, you have seen Prince Argan killed in clean combat. Is there any more debate concerning the succession of Fox? About half a dozen of them, who had no doubt been Argonne's chief partisans, made no other answer than to wheel about and gallop off. The rest all raised their helmets on their spears and shouted for Trunia and peace. Then I let go his hand, and he rode forward and in among them, and was soon talking with their captains. "'Now, Queen,' said Bardi in my ear, "'it is an absolute necessity that you should bid some of our notables "'and some of those from Fars. the Prince will tell us which,' To a feast in the palace, in Arnhem, too. A feast, Bardia, of bean bread? You know we've got bare larders in gloam. There's the pig, queen, and Ungut must let us have a share of the bull. I'll speak to Arnhem of it. You must let the king's cellar blood to some purpose tonight, and then the bread will be less noticed. Thus my fancy of a snug supper with Bardia and the fox was dashed, and my sword not yet wiped from the blood of my first battle, before I found myself all woman again and caught up in housewife's cares. If only I could have ridden away from them all and got to the butler before they reached the palace and learned what wine we really had. My father, and doubtless Bada had had enough to swim in during his last few days. In the end, there were five and twenty of us, counting myself, who rode back from the field of the palace, the prince was at my side, saying all manner of fine things about me, as indeed he had some reason, and always begging me to let me see, let him see my face. It was only a kind of courteous manner, which had been nothing to any other woman. To me it was so new, and, I must confess this also, so sweet that I could not choose but to keep the sport up a little. I had been happy, far happier than I could hope to be again with Psyche and the fox long ago before our troubles now for the first time in all my life at the last i was gay a new world very bright seemed to be opening all round me it was of course the god's old trick blow the bubble up big before you prick it they pricked it a moment after i'd crossed the threshold of my house a little girl whom i'd never seen before a slave came out from some corner where she'd been lurking and whispered in bardia's ear He had been very merry up till now. The sunlight went out of his face. Then he came up to me and said half shamefacedly, Queen, the day's work is over. You'll not need me now. I'll take it very kindly if you'd let me go home. My wife's taken with her pains. We had thought it would not be so soon. I'd be glad to be with her tonight. I understood in that moment all my father's rages. I put terrible constraint on myself and said, Why, Bardia, it is very fit you should commend me to your wife. Offer this ring to Ungit for her safe delivery. The ring which I took off my finger was the choicest I had. His thanks were hearty, and yet he had hardly time to utter them before he was speeding away. I suppose he never dreamed he had done to me with those words, The day's work is over. Yes, that was it. The day's work. I was his work. He earned his bread by being my soldier. When his tale of work for the day was done, he went home like other hired men and took up his true life. That night's banquet was the first I'd ever been at and the last I ever sat through. We do not lie at table like Greeks, but sitting on chairs or benches. After this, though, I gave many feasts. I never did more than to come in three times and pledge the most notable guests and speak to all and then out again, always with two of my women attending me. This has saved me much weariness, besides putting about a great notion either of my pride or my modesty, which had been useful enough. That night, I sat nearly to the end, and the only woman in the whole mob of them. Three parts of me was ashamed and frightened Orwell, who looked forward to a scolding from the fox for being there at all, and was bitterly lonely. The fourth part was Queen. Proud, though dazed too, amid the heat and clamour, sometimes dreaming, she could laugh loud and drink deep like a man and a warrior, next moment, more madly, answering to Trunia's daffing, as if her veil hid the face of a pretty woman. When I got away, and up into the cold and stillness of the gallery, my head reeled and ached. And pho, I thought, what vile things men are. They were all drunk by now, except the fox, who had gone early but their drinking had sickened me less than their eating. I had never seen men at their pleasures before, the gobbling, snatching, belching, hiccuping, and greasiness of it all, the bones thrown on the floor, the dogs quarreling under our feet. Were all men such? Would Bardia? Then back came my loneliness, my double loneliness for Bardia, for Psyche, not separable. The picture, the impossible fool's dream, was all that should have been different from the very beginning and he would have been my husband and psyche our daughter then i would have been in labor with psyche and to me he would have been coming home but now i discovered the wonderful power of wine i understand why men become drunkards for the way it worked on me was not at all that it blotted out those sorrows but it made them seem glorious and noble like sad music and somehow great and i somehow great and reverend for feeling them. I was a great, sad queen in a song. I did not check the big tears that rose in my eyes. I enjoyed them. To say all, I was drunk. I played the fool. And so to my fool's bed. What was that? No, no, not a girl crying in the garden. No one, cold, hungry, and banished, was shivering there, longing and not daring to come in. It was the chain swinging at the well. It would be folly to get up and go out and call again. Psyche, Psyche, my only love. I am a great queen. I have killed a man. I am drunk like a man. All warriors drink deep after the battle. Bardia's lips on my hand were like the touch of lightning. All great princes have mistresses or lovers. There's the crying again. No, it's only the buckets at the well. Shut the window, Pooby. To your bed, child. Do you love me, Pooby? Kiss me a good night. Good night. The king's dead. He'll never pull my hair again. A straight thrust and then a cut in the leg. That would have killed him. I am the queen. I'll kill Oral too. Chapter 20 On the next day we burnt the old king. On the day after that we betrothed Redival to Trunia and the wedding was made a month later. A third day all the strangers rode off and we had the house to ourselves. My real reign began. I must now pass quickly over many years, though they made up the longest part of my life, during which the Queen of Gloam had more and more part in me, and Orwell had less and less. I locked Orwell up and laid her asleep as best I could somewhere deep down inside me, and she lay curled there. It was like being with child, but reverse. The thing I carried in me grew slowly smaller and less alive. It may happen that someone who reads this book will have heard tales and songs about my reign and my wars and great deeds. Let him be sure that most of it is false, for I know already that the common talk, and especially in neighboring lands, has doubled and trebled the truth, and my deeds, such as they were, have been mixed up with those of some great fighting queen who lived longer ago and, I think, further north, and a fine patchwork of wonders and impossibilities made out of both. But the truth is that after my battle with Argan, there were only three wars that I fought, and one of them, the last, against the wagon men who lived beyond the Grey Mountain, was a very slight thing. And though I rode out with my men in all these wars, I was never such a fool as to think myself a great captain. All that part of it was Bardia's and Penwan's. I met him first the night after I fought Argan, and he became the trustiest of my nobles. I will also say this, I was never yet at any battle but that, when the lines were drawn up and the first enemy arrows came flashing in among us, and the grass and trees about me suddenly became a place, a field, a thing to be put in chronicles. I wished very heartily that I had stayed at home. Nor did I ever do any notable deed with my own arm but once, that was in the war with Esser when some of their horse came out of an ambush and Bardia, riding in his position, was surrounded all in a moment. Then I galloped in and hardly knew what I was doing till the matter was over, and they say I had killed seven men with my own strokes. I was wounded that day. But to hear the common rumor, you would think I had planned every war and every battle and killed more enemies than all the rest of our army put together. My real strength lay in two things. The first was that I had, especially over the first years, two very good counselors. You couldn't have had better yoke fellows, for the fox understood what Bardia did not, and neither cared a straw for his own dignity or advancement when my needs were in question. And I came to understand what my girl's ignorance had once hidden from me, that their girding and mocking one another was little more than a sort of game. They were no flatterers either, In this way I had some profit of my ugliness. They did not think of me as a woman. If they had, it is impossible that we three alone, by the hearth in the pillar room, as we were often, should have talked with such freedom. I learned from them a thousand things about men. My second strength lay in my veil. I could never have believed, till I had proof of it, what it would do for me. From the very first, it began that night in the garden with Trunia, As soon as my face was invisible, people began to discover all manner of beauties in my voice. At first it was deep as a man's, but nothing in the world less mannish. Later, and until it grew cracked with age, it was the voice of a spirit, a siren, Orpheus, what you will. And as years passed, there were fewer in the city and none beyond it who remembered my face. The wildest stories got about as to what the veil hid. No one believed it was anything so common as the face of an ugly woman. Some said, nearly all the younger women said, that it was frightful beyond endurance, a pig's, bear's, cat's, or elephant's face. The best story was that I had no face at all. If you stripped off my veil, you'd find emptiness. But another sort there were more of the men among these, said that I wore a veil because I was of a beauty so dazzling that if I let it be seen, all men in the world would run mad, or else that Ungut was jealous of my beauty and had promised to blast me if I went bareface. The upshot of all this nonsense was that I became something very mysterious and awful. I have seen ambassadors who were brave men in battle turn white like scared children in my pillar room when I turned and looked at them and they couldn't see whether I was looking or not, and was silent. I have made the most seasoned liars turn red and blurt out the truth with the same weapon. The first thing I did was to shift my own quarters over to the north side of the palace in order to be out of that sound the chains made in the well, for though by daylight I knew well enough what made it, at night nothing I could do could cure me of taking it for the weeping of a girl. But the change of my quarters, and later changes, for I tried every side of the house, did no good. I discovered that there was no part of the palace from which the swinging of those chains could not be heard. At night, I mean, when the silence grows deep, it is a thing no one would have found out who was not always afraid of hearing one sound. And at the same time, that was Orwell, Orwell refusing to die, terribly afraid of not hearing it, if for once, if possibly, at last, After 10,000 mockeries, it should be real if Psyche had come back. But I knew this was foolishness. If Psyche were alive and able to come back and wanted to come back, she would have done it long ago. She must be dead by now or caught by someone and sold into slavery. When that thought came, my only resource was to rise, however late and cold it was, and go to my pillar room and find some work. I have read and written till I till I could hardly see out of my eyes, my head on fire, my feet aching with cold. Of course, I had my bidders in every slave market, and my seekers in every land that I could reach, and listened to every traveler's tale that might put us on Psyche's track. I did these things for years, but they were infinitely irksome to me, for I knew it was all hopeless. Before I had reigned for a year, I remember the time well, for the men were picking the figs, I had Bata hanged. Following up a chance word, which one of the horseboys said in my hearing, I found that she had long been the pest of the whole palace. No trifle could be given to any of the other slaves, and hardly a good bit could come on their trenchers, but Bata must have her share of it. Otherwise she would tell tales of them, as would lead to the whipping post or to the mines. And after Bata was hanged, I went on and reduced the household to better order. There were far too many slaves, some slaves, thieves and sluts I sold. Many of the good ones, both men and women, if they were sturdy and prudent, for otherwise to free a slave is but to have a new beggar at your door. I set free and gave them land and cottages for their livelihood. I coupled them off in pairs and married them. Sometimes I even let them choose their own wives or husbands, which is a strange, unusual way of making even slaves' marriages, and yet it often turned out well enough. Though it was a great loss to me, I set Pooby free, and she chose a very good man. Some of my happiest hours have been beside the fire in her cottage, and most of these freed people have become very thriving husband, husbandmen, all living near the palace and very faithful to me. It was like having a second body of guards. I set the mines, they were silver mines, on a better footing. My father had never, it seems, thought of them save as a punishment. Take them to the mines, he'd say. I'll teach them, work them to death. But there was more death than work in the mines, and the yield was light. As soon as I could get an honest overseer, Bardia was incomparable for finding out such men, I bought strong young slaves for the mines, saw that they had dry lodging and good feeding, and let every man know that he should go free when he had, adding day to day, done so much ore. The tale was such that a steady man could hope for his freedom in ten years. Later we brought it down to seven. This lowered the yield for the first year, but it had raised it by a tenth in the third. Now it is half as great again as in my father's day. Ours is the best silver in all this part of the world, and a great root of our wealth. I took the fox out of the wretched dog hole in which he had slept all these years, and gave him noble apartments on the south side of the palace and land for his living, so that he should not seem to hang on my bounties. I also put money into his hands for the buying if it should prove possible of books <coughs> it took a long time for traders
1: it's perhaps
0: it took a long time for traders perhaps 20 kingdoms away to learn that there was a vent for books in gloam and longer still for the books to come up changing hands many times and often delayed for a year or more on the journey the fox tore his hair at the cost of them and worth for a talent, he said. We had to take what we could get, not what we chose. In this way, we built up what was for a barbarous land, a, no- a noble library, 18 works in all. We had Homer's poetry about Troy, imperfect, coming down to that place where he brings in Patroclus weeping. We had two tragedies of Euripides, one about Andromeda, and another where Dionysius says the prologue and the chorus is the wild women. Also, a very good, useful book, without meter, about the breeding and trenching of horses and cattle, the worming of dogs, and such matters. Also, some of the Conversations of Socrates, a poem in honor of Helen by Hesias Stethicorus, a book of Heraclitus, and a very long, a hard book, without meter, which begins, All men by nature desire knowledge. As soon as the books began to come in, Arnum would often be with the fox learning to read in them, and presently other men, mostly younger sons of nobles, came too. And now I began to live as a queen should, and to know my own nobles, and to show courtesies to the great ladies of the land. In this way, of necessity, I came to meet Bardia's wife, Anset. I had thought she would be a dazzling beauty, but in truth she was very short, and now having borne eight children, very fat and unshapely. All the women of Gloam splay out like that pretty early in their lives. That was one thing, perhaps, which helped the fantasy that I had, had a lovely face behind my veil. Being a virgin, I had kept my shape, and that, if you didn't see my face, was for a long time very tolerable. I put a great force upon myself to be courteous to Ansett, more than courteous, even loving. More than that, I would have loved her indeed for Barty's sake if I could have done it. "'But she was mute as a mouse in my presence, afraid of me,' I thought. "'When we tried to talk together, her eyes would wander around the room "'as if she were asking, "'Who will deliver me from this?' "'In a sudden flash, not without joy in it, the thought came to me, "'Can she be jealous?' "'And so it was through all those years, whenever we met. "'Sometimes, I would say to myself, "'She has lain in his bed, and that's bad. "'She has borne his children, and that's worse.' But had she ever crouched beside him in the ambush, ever ridden knee to knee with him in the charge, or shared a stinking water bottle with him at the thirsty day's end? For all the dove's eyes they've made at one another, was there ever such a glance between them as well-proved comrades exchange in farewell when they ride different ways and both into desperate danger? I have known, I have had, so much of him that she could never dream of. She's his toy, his recreation his leisure, his solace. I am in his man's life. It's strange to think how Bardio went to and fro daily between queen and wife. Well assured, he did his duty by both, as he did, and without a thought, doubtless, of the pother he made between them. This is what it is to be a man. The one sin the gods never forgive us is that of being born women. The duty of queenship that irked me most was going off into the house of ungut and sacrificing, It would have been worse, but that unget herself, or my pride made me think so, was now weakened. Arnhem had opened new windows of the walls, and her house was not so dark. He also kept it differently, scouring away the blood after each slaughter, and sprinkling sprinkling fresh water, it smelled cleaner and less holy. And Arnhem was learning from the fox to talk like a philosopher about the gods. The great change came when he proposed to set up an image of her, a woman-shaped image in the Greek fashion, in front of the old shapeless stone. I think he would like to have got rid of the stone altogether, but it is, in a manner, Ungit herself, and the people would have gone mad if she were moved. It was a prodigious charge to get such an image as he wanted, for no one in Gloam could make it. It had to be brought not indeed from the Greek lands themselves, but from the lands where men had learned it from the Greeks. I was rich now and helped him with silver. I was not quite certain why I did this. I think I felt that an image of this sort would be somehow a defeat for the old, hungry, faceless Ungut whose terror had been over me in childhood. The new image, when at last it came, seemed to us barbarians wonderfully beautiful and lifelike, even when we brought her white and naked into her house and when we had painted her and put her robes on She was a marvel to all the lands about, and the pilgrims came to see her. The fox, who had seen greater and more beautiful works at home, laughed at her. I gave up trying to find a room where I should not hear that noise, which was sometimes chains swinging in the wind and sometimes lost and beggared psyche weeping at my door. Instead, I built stone walls around the well and put a thatched roof over it and added a door. The walls were very thick, my mason told me they were badly thick. Your waste ain't good enough stone, Queen. He said to have made ten new pigsties. For a while after that was an ugly f- that that went that an ugly fancy used to come to me in my dreams, or between sweet sleeping and waking, that I had walled up, gagged, with stone, not a well but Psyche or Orwell herself. But that also passed. I heard Psyche weeping no more. The year after that, I defeated Esser. The fox was growing old now and needed rest. He, we had him less and less in my pillar room. He was very busy writing a history of gloom. He wrote it twice, in Greek and in our own tongue, which he now saw was capable of eloquence. It was strange for me to see our own speech written out in the Greek letters. I never told the fox that he knew, le- knew less of it than he believed, so that what he wrote in it was often laughable, and most so where he thought it most eloquent. As he grew older, he seemed to be ever less and less a philosopher, and to talk more of eloquence and figures and poetry. His voice grew always shriller, and he talked more and more. He often mistook me for psyche now. Sometimes he called me Cretus, and sometimes even by boys' names like Carmides and Glaucon. But I was too busy to be with him much. What did I not do? I had all the laws revised and cut in stone in the center of the city. I narrowed and deepened the Shenet till barges could come up to our gates. I made a bridge where the old ford had been. I made cisterns so that we would not go thirsty when it was a dry year. I became wise about stock and bought in good bulls and rams and bettered our breeds. I did, and I did, and I did. And what does it matter what I did? I cared for all these things only as a man cares for a hunt or a game, which fills the mind and seems for some moment (coughs) while it lasts. But then the beasts killed or the kings mated, and now who cares? It was so with me almost every evening of my life. One little stairway led me from feast or council, all the bustle and skill and glory of queenship, to my own chamber to be alone with myself, that is, with a nothingness. Going to bed and waking in the morning, I woke most often too early, were bad times. So many hundreds of evenings and mornings. Sometimes I wondered who or what sends us this senseless repetition of days and nights and seasons and years. Is it, is it not like hearing a stupid boy whistle the same tune over and over till you wonder how he can bear it himself? The fox died and I gave him a kingly funeral and made four Greek verses which were cut on his tomb. I will not write them here, lest a true Greek should laugh at them. This happened about the end of harvest. The tomb is up behind the pear trees where he used to teach Psyche and me in summer. Then the days and months and years went on again as before, round and round like a wheel, till there came a day when I looked about me at the gardens of the palace and the ridge of the gray mountain out eastward and thought I could no longer endure to see these same things every day till I died. The very blisters of the pitch on the wooden walls of the beers (coughs) seemed to be the same ones I'd seen before the fox himself came to Glome. I resolved to go on a progress and travel in other lands. We were at peace with everyone. Bardia and Penuen and Marnam could do all that was needed while I was away, for indeed Glome had now been nursed and trained till it almost ruled itself. I took with me Bardia's son, Ilertia, and Pooby's daughter, Elit, and two of my women, and a plump of spears, all honest men, and a cook and a groom, with pack animals for the tents and victual, and rode out of the gloam three days later. Chapter 21 The thing for whose sake I tell this journey happened at the very end of it, and even when I thought it was finished, and even when and even when I had thought it was finished. We had gone first into Fars, where they harvest later than we, so that it was like having that piece of the year twice over. We found that we were, had just left at home, the sound of the wetting and singing of the reapers, the flats of stubble widening, and the squares of standing corn diminishing, and piled rat wagons in the lanes, all the sweat and sunburn and merriment. We had lain ten nights or more in Trunia's palace, where I was astonished to see how Redivole had grown fat and lost her beauty. She talked, as of old, everlastingly, but all about her children, and asked after no one in Gloam except Bada. Trunian never listened to a word she said, but he and I had much talk together. I had already settled with my counsel that his second son, Darren, was to be king of Gloam after my day. This Darren was, for the son of so silly a mother, a right-minded boy. I could have loved him if I had let myself and if Redival had been out of the way. But I would never give my heart again to any young creature. Out of far as we had turned westward into Esser, by deep passes through the mountains, this was a country of forests greater than I had yet seen, and rushing rivers with plenty of birds, deer, and other game. The people I had with me were all young and took great pleasure in their travels, and the journey itself had by now linked us all together, all burned brown and with a world of hopes, cares, jests, and knowledge, all sprung up since we left home and shared among us. At first there had been they had been in awe of me and ridden in silence. Now we were good friends. My own heart lifted. The eagles wheeled above us and the waterfalls roared.
2: From the mountains
0: we came down into Esser and lay three nights in the king's house. He was, I think, not a bad sort of man, but too slavish courteous for me. For gloam and far as an alliance had made Esther change her tune, his queen was manifestly terrified by my veil and by the story she had heard of me. And from that house I meant to turn homewards, but we were told of a natural hot spring fifteen miles further to the west. I knew Alertia wanted to see it, and I thought, between sadness and smiling, how the fox would have scolded me if I had been so near any curious work of nature and not examined it. So I said we would go the day's journey further in turn then. It was the calmest day, pure autumn, very hot, yet the sunlight on the stubble looked aged and gentle, not fierce like the summer heats. You would think the year was resting, its work done. And I whispered to myself that I, too, would begin to rest. When I was back at gloam, I would no longer pile task on task. I would let Barty rest, too. I had often thought he had begun to look tired, and we would let younger heads be busy while we sat in the sun and talked of our old ba- old battles. What more was there for me to do? Why should I not be at peace? I thought this was the wisdom of old age beginning. The hot spring, like all such rarities, was only food for stupid wonder. When we had seen it, we went further down the warm green valley in which it rose and found a good camping place between a stream and a wood, While my people were busied with the tents and horses, I went a little way into the wood and sat there in the coolness. Before long, I heard the ringing of a temple bell. All temples nearly have bells in Esser from somewhere behind me. Thinking it would be pleasant to walk a little after so many hours on horseback, I rose and went slowly through the trees to find the temple, very idly, not caring whether I found it or not. But in a few minutes, I came out into a mossy place free of trees And there it was, no bigger than a peasant's hut, but built of pure white stone with fluted pillars in the Greek style. Behind it, I could see a small thatched house where, no doubt, the priest lived. The place itself was quiet enough, but inside the temple there was a far deeper silence, and it was very cool. It was clean and empty, and there were none of the common temple smells about it, so I thought it must belong to one of those small peaceful gods who are content with flowers and fruit for sacrifice. Then I saw it must be a goddess, for there was on the altar the image of a woman, about two feet high, carved in wood, not badly done, and all the fairer to my mind, because there was no painting or gilding, but only the natural pale color of the wood. The thing that marred it was a band or or scarf of some black stuff tied around the head of the image so as to hide its face much like my own veil, but that mine was white. I thought how much better all this was than the house of Unget, and how unlike. Then I heard a step behind me, and turning, saw that a man in a black robe had come in. He was an old man with quiet eyes, perhaps a little simple. "'Does the stranger want to make an offering to the goddess?' he said. I slipped a couple of coins into his hand and asked what goddess she was. "'Istra,' he said. The name was not so uncommon in Gloam and the neighboring lands that I had much cause to be startled, but I said I had never heard of a goddess called that. Oh, that is because she is a very young goddess. She has only just begun to be a goddess. For you must know that, like many other gods, she began by being a mortal. And how was she godded? She is so lately godded that she is still a rather poor goddess, stranger. Yet for one little silver piece I will tell you the sacred story. Thank you, kind stranger, thank you. Istra will be your friend for this, and now I will tell you the sacred story. Once upon a time, in a certain land, there lived a king and a queen who had three daughters, and the youngest was the most beautiful princess in the whole world. And so he went on, as such priests do, all in a sing-song voice and using words which he clearly knew by heart. And to me it was as if the old man's voice and the temple and I myself and my journey were all things in such a story, for he was telling the very history of our istra of Psyche herself, how Talipal, that's the Assyrian ungut, was jealous of her beauty and made her to be offered to a brute on a mountain, and how Talipal's son, Ialim, the most beautiful of the gods, loved her and took her away to his secret palace. He even knew that Ilim was had had there visited her only in darkness and had forbidden her to see his face. But he had a childish reason for that. You see, stranger, he had to be very secret because of his mother, Talipal. She would have been very angry with him if she had known he had married the woman she most hated in the world. I thought to myself... It's well for me. I didn't hear this story fifteen years ago, yes, or even ten. It would have reawakened all my sleeping miseries. Now it moves me hardly at all. Then suddenly, struck afresh with the queerness of the thing, I asked him, Where did you learn all this? He stared at me as if he didn't understand such a question. It's the sacred story, he said. I saw that he was rather silly than cunning and that it would be useless to question him. As soon as I was silent, he went on. But now all the dreamlike feeling in me suddenly vanished. I was wide awake, and I felt the blood rush to my face. He was telling it wrong, hideously and stupidly wrong. First of all, he made it that both Psyche's sisters had visited her in the secret palace of the god to think of Redival going there. And so, he said, when her two sisters had seen the beautiful palace and been feasted and given gifts, they, they saw the palace. Stranger, you are hindering the sacred story, Of course, they saw the palace. They weren't blind, and then it was as if the gods themselves had first laughed and then spat in my face to this was the shape the so this was the shape the story had taken. You may say the shape the gods had given it for it must be that they who had put it into the old fool's mind or into the mind of some other dreamer from whom he had learned it. How could any mortal have known of that palace at all, that much of the truth they had dropped into someone's mind in a dream, or an oracle, or however they do such things, that much, and wipe clean out the very meaning, the pith, the central knot of the whole tale? Do I not do well to write a book against them, telling what they have kept hidden? Never sitting in my judge- on my judgment seat have I caught a false witness in a more cunning half-truth, For if the true story had been like their story, no riddle would have been set me. There would have been no guessing and no guessing wrong. More than that, it's a story belonging to a different world, a world in which the gods show themselves clearly and don't torment men with their glimpses, nor unveil to one what they hide from another, nor ask you to believe what contradicts your eyes and ears and nose and tongue and fingers. In such a world, is there such? It's not ours for certain. I would have walked aright the gods themselves would have been able to find no fault in me. And now to tell my story as if I had had the very sight that they denied me is not—is it not as if you had told a cripple's story and never said he was lame or told how a man betrayed a secret but never said it was after 20 hours of torture. And I saw all in a moment how the false story would grow and spread and be told all over the earth, and I wondered how many of the other sacred stories are just such twisted falsities as this. And so, the priest was saying, when these two wicked sisters had made their plan to ruin Istra, they brought her the lamp and... But why did she, they, want to separate her from the god if they'd seen the palace? They wanted to destroy her because they had seen her palace. But why? Oh, because they were jealous. Her husband and her house was so much finer than theirs. That moment I resolved to write this book. For years now my old quarrel with the gods had slept. I had come into Bardia's way of thinking. I no longer meddled with them. Often, though I had seen a god myself, I was near to believing that there are no such things. The memory of his voice and face was kept in one of those rooms of my soul that I didn't lightly unlock. Now instantly I knew I was facing them. I, with no strength, and they with all, I visible to them, they invisible to me, I easily wounded, already so wounded that all my life had been but a hiding and staunching of the wound, they invulnerable. I won, they many. In all these years, they had only let me run away from them as far as the cat lets the mouse run. Now, snatch, and the jo- the claw on me again. Well, I could speak, I could set down the truth. What they, what had never perhaps been done in the world before would should be done now. The case against them should be written. Jealousy, I, jealous of Psyche. I sickened not only at the vileness of the lie, but at its flatness. It seemed as if the gods had minds just like the lowest of the people. What came easiest to them, what seemed like the likeliest and simplest reason to put in a story, was the dull, narrow passion of the beggars' streets, the temple brothels, the slave, the child, the dog. Could they not lie? If lie, they must better than that. And wanderers over the earth weeping weeping always weeping how long had the old man been going on that one word rang in my ears as if i had repeated it a thousand times i set my teeth and my soul stood on guard a moment more and i should have begun to hear the sound myself again she would have been weeping in that little wood outside the temple door that's enough i shouted do you think i don't know a girl cries when her heart breaks go on go on Wanders, weeping, weeping, always weeping, he said, and falls under the power of Talipol, who hates her. And of course, Ailem can't protect her because Talipol is his mother and he's afraid of her. So Talipol torments Istra and sets her to all manner of hard labors, things that seem impossible. But when Istra has done them all, when at last Talipol releases her and she is re- reunited to Ailim, and becomes a goddess, Then we take off her black veil and I change my black robe for a white one and we offer... You mean she will someday be reunited to the god and you will take off her veil then? When is this to happen? We take off the veil and I change my robe in the spring. Do you think I care what you do? Has the thing itself happened yet or not? Is Isra now wandering over the earth or has she already become a goddess? But stranger. The sacred story is about the sacred things, the things we do in the temple in spring, and all summer she is a goddess. Then when harvest comes, we bring a lamp into the temple in the night, and the god flies away. Then we veil her, and all winter she is wandering and suffering, weeping, always weeping. He knew nothing. The story and the worship were all one in his mind. He could not understand what I was asking. I've heard your story told otherwise, old man, said I. I think the sister or the sisters, might have more to say for themselves than you know. You may be sure that they would have plenty to say for themselves, he replied. The jealous always have. Why, my own wife now, I saluted him, and went out of that cold place into the warmth of the wood. I could see through the trees the red light of the fire my people had already kindled, the sun had set. I hid all the things I was feeling, and indeed... I did not know what they were except that all the peace of that autumnal journey was shattered so as not to spoil the pleasure of my people. Next day I understood more clearly I could never be at peace again till I had written my charge against the gods. It burned me from within. It quickened. I was with book as a woman is with child. And so it comes about that I can tell nothing of our journey back to Glom. There were seven or eight days of it. We passed many notable places in Esther and in Gloam, After we had crossed the border, we saw everywhere such good peace and plenty and such duty and, I think, love towards myself as ought to have gladdened me. But my eyes and ears were shut up all day, and often all night, too. I was recalling every passage of the, the true story, dragging up terrors, humiliations, struggles, and anguish that I had not thought of for years, letting Auroa wake and speak digging her almost out of a grave, out of the walled well. The more I remembered, the more still I could remember, often weeping beneath my veil as if I had never been queen, never yet in so much sorrow that my burning indignation did not rise above it. I was in haste, too. I must write it all quickly before the gods found some way to silence me. Whenever, towards evening, Alertia pointed and said, Their queen would be a good place for the tents, I said, before I had thought what I would say. No, no, we can make three more miles tonight or five. Every morning I woke early at first, enduring the waiting, fretting myself in the cold mist, listening to the deep-breathed sleep of those young sleepers. But soon my patience would serve me no longer. I took to waking them. I woke them earlier each morning. In the end, we were traveling like those who fly from a victorious enemy. I became silent, and this struck the others silent, too. I could see they were bewildered, and all the comfort of their travels was gone. I suppose they whispered together about the Queen's moods. When I reached home, even though I could not set about it as suddenly as I hoped, all manner of petty work had piled up, and now, when I most needed help, word was sent to me that Bardia was a little sick and kept his bed. I asked Arnhem about Bardia's sickness, and Arnhem said, It's neither poison nor fever, Queen, a small matter for a strong man, but he'd best not rise. He's aging, you know. It would have given me a thrust of fear, but that I already knew, and had seen growing signs of it lately, how that his wife of his cockered and cosseted him like a hen with one chicken. Not, I'd swear, through any true fears, but to keep him at home and away from the palace. Yet at last, after infinite hindrances, I made my book, and here it stands now you who read it judge between the gods and me they gave me nothing in the world to love but psyche then took her from me but that was not enough they then brought me to her at such a place and time that it hung on my word whether she should continue in bliss or be cast out into misery they could not tell me whether she was the bride of a god nor mad or a brutes or villains spoil they would give no clear sign though i begged for it i had to guess and because i guessed wrong they punished me what's worse punished me through her and even that was not enough they have now sent out a lying story in which i was given no riddle to guess but but knew and saw that she was the god's bride and of my own will destroyed her and that for jealousy as if i were another redevil i say the gods deal very unrightly with us for they will neither which would be best of all go away and leave us to live our own short days to ourselves, nor will they show themselves openly, and tell us what they would have us do. For that, too, would be, would be endurable. But to hint and hover, to draw near to us in dreams and oracles, or in waking vision that vanishes as soon as seen, to be dead silent when we question them, then glide back and whisper words we cannot understand in our ears, when we most wish to be free of them, and to show one, What they hide from one another. What is all this but cat-and-mouse play, blind man's bluff, a mere jugglery? Why must holy places be dark places? I say, therefore, there is no creature, toad, scorpion, or serpent, so noxious to man as the gods. Let them answer my charge if they can. It It may well be that instead of answering, they'll strike me mad or leprous or turn me into a beast, bird, or tree. But will not all the world then know? And the gods will know it knows that this is because they have no answer. Do, do, do. Okay. What have we? We have, uh, Some of the factoids would be uh, things like, uh... Tunis, when he said tunis and olives, means tuna.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, T-U-N-N-I-E-S. Um, he has a. Um, <coughs> you bid on her library. You basically, Homer's Iliad, Euripides, Andromeda, and the Bacchantes. Uh, Aristotle's History of Animals, Dialogues of Plato, Poems of Stasichorus, Heraclitus, and then Aristotle's Metaphysics. Uh, but, what did they say, 16 books? Something like that? 18 books? I forget what it was. Um, I think that's it for, unless you've got, you got something that you you guys picked up on that would be uh, Difficult.
3: Um,
0: <clears throat> oh, and the killing of argon. Uh, you know, the femoral artery in your inner thigh, yep. if it gets cut, you bleed out right now. I don't know how many minutes. Three maximum, you're dead. So it was a sort of an accurate, very neatly done Um, execution, I guess. Um, So, how about the ideas that uh, come upon us in this? We've got uh, a bunch thrown at us. The first was probably the fox apologizing for thinking that love could be used as leverage when he had tried to stop her from being in the fight. If you love me, don't do it. You know, that sort of Thing. it's sort of it's sort of uh, an outside conscience of Orwell's problem. You know, um, she will certainly use love for her as a leverage. Um, um, uh, do we do we? Li- it seems like the queen is very likable as the queen. You know, uh, certainly capable, capable, athletic, uh, brave. Um, wise, etc. Hiding Orwell and all that is wrong with Orwell.
4: Uh, so. um. um. I thought it was interesting when um, when the fox apologized for using her her love for him. As um, a, a weapon against her, I, I thought it was interesting that she didn't really have like any commentary
0: on it. Um, yeah, that's a little bit too personal. Do you think a little?
4: Maybe, maybe, or didn't maybe notice she it. she just like didn't notice, and it was just like,
0: yeah. We're we're all in the audience. We're all noticing and <laughs> pointing it out to you. You see that?
4: We're noticing a lot
0: of things. I think she's not. Because <laughs> well, she does seem to she she gives us all the information, you know. But she sizes it up and then falls, the just like in her decision making about the supposed riddle falling the wrong way she fa- seems to fall the wrong way in her own justification she, she what if the, the gods do this to us and the gods do that to us and why, well, just make a mistake and make the wrong choice or whatever, I, we get, I get punished uh.
2: well, She doesn't realize she's writing her own um, you know Prosecution against Orwell um, would use her book as as like evidence. Yeah. She doesn't realize that. And anybody who has a complaint against the gods or against um, anyone will often sort of out themselves in the midst of the complaint if they can vocalize it. It just doesn't look good. No, no. They're they're gonna stick their foot in their mouth they're never they're never gonna say you know I'm angry with you because um, of good true and noble things mm-hmm. um, it's it's always uh, self self-centered things mm-hmm. but it does seem weird that she would and we, so do, detailed.
0: and we basically have this chunk. She goes from young queen, who fights for her throne, years of queening it going on, and then this little event at the end on her tour brings it all back, and she decides to write the book. She has efficiently put Orwell in a box somewhere, in her thinking. The queen is the official uh, the, the person living out the story the but you're also getting some elements of change you get the elements of change of Arnom changing the kind of idol in the temple of unget mm-hmm. and that it's less holy
1: cuz it's light
0: clean. light it doesn't smell like blood the goddess
1: is yeah. white the white stone let the fox get to him figure
0: yeah painted uh
2: He's more he, creepy, I guess. Um, progressive and liberal. And yeah, actually. he's gotten more philosophical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did think of
4: like
1: that. liberal.
2: The
0: liberal priest. He doesn't <laughs> seem like uh, scary anymore. Is that a... And you get the same also, the shift in the country. The, the gloam is improved under her rule. But then the shift, you know that the myth of Istra has gotten into Assur and a uh, Grecofied, Hellenized, you know, where um, these changes are going on that almost—they um, almost, almost make—they're—they're uh, they're sort of making the world that Orwell wants herself to be in, which is a world where people get to do what they want, that gods stay away. This sort of puts the presence of Ungut away. It is no longer, a th- no longer a threat, the faceless idol that's been there. Uh, it's if, now just a myth. The gods
2: are the federal government or a, will's a libertarian.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, but this is making all the tales of the, all the players put the gods comfortably where they belong, because she doesn't want, that last little bit she's talking about, you know, we don't need you, we don't want you, we don't want you messing with us, um, why can't you understand that, um, um, tell us what you'd have us do, or uh, but to play around with us, and then uh, why must holy places be dark places, yeah. That. That was what ungod worship had been at the beginning of the book. By the time you get to her reign and Arunam taking over and Bardia's philosophy, not Bardia's, uh, Fox's philosophy, her wise rule, um, this encounter with the religion about Istra that is all cleaned up and now just religion uh, with a retarded priest. Um, Is that... Is that... uh, Kind of the world she wants, but she can't accept that the story that has landed on her uh, in that cleaning up of things, where it's now just myths. But she knows the truth of the story. She can't stand to have it be two sisters who were jealous of her palace. You know, um, it, it's like you can't have it both ways. She wants to straighten out the gods, or have the gods leave her alone, and she's.
2: She, she knows the truth of the story. She doesn't want to hear the story as it's, as it's coming across to all the worshipers because it makes her
0: look bad. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe she is wrong.
2: Maybe. Or it just it doesn't question the gods. Um,
3: she's not quite so noble in... Uh, the story that's gone abroad. Yeah. So she's yeah. in one of her own mind. So. Now, do you think that's... It sounds, it sounds a little bit what she's
0: relating. It sounds a little unfair, right? But, you know, is it jealousy? I like the The priest sounds like a, a retard for the most part. <laughs> Until he says... Um, you know, when she says that there would be other... Um, they have something to say for themselves and you know. The jealous always have. The, the, the priest says, the jealous always have. They always have something to say. Um,
2: he was right in that. I mean,
0: did, did he nail it? I mean, did he... Um,
2: not, not on the head, but... it His sort of folksy priestcraft is... Uh, Still, I'm still gonna say, I don't know why, but he was right for some there's, reason. There's a, a,
4: like a kernel of, of truth that has been preserved in the Gospel of Istra, mm. um, and
0: so how would you how would you uh, uh, how would you tie the kernel of we're at this is the end of the book until the second book kicks in, and that's we like next week we finish the book and the her short epilogue, um, short, same length as all the others, um, but how would you describe how that priest's colonel about the jealousy of the sisters is true for Orwell? <coughs> I think that this, the, the new...
4: You know, silly little story that they tell doesn't get the. It it really like simplifies her jealousy because because um, he's like, oh yeah, she has, she had a better husband, and better house mm. than the sisters, um, and, um, and her jealousy is, it. It's true that she had it, but the content of that is so much more.
0: It's not so. It's not something so patent as better looks, better house, bigger car mm-hmm. it's like unget which is this woman is getting more adoration than I am yeah,
2: or like or
0: story. I am I am it's always Orwell's always about do am I getting the uh, the love back that I expect in this situation she's jealous of the love she's jealous at any time the love goes anywhere else A- and Uh, Barty, his wife, Mm -hmm. anytime, anything is anywhere else, Um, uh, Psyche has a husband, she can't understand how how I can add that into her, so there is a jealousy there that is just not a vile, it's not the simple jealousy of, I saw the palace, and I wanted it to be, my palace to be just as big as hers, Mm -hmm. that sounds cheesy in high school, but it's really just jealousy,
4: Envy? or like what's the
0: difference between envy and jealousy uh, jealousy is something that is 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 a thing owed you a, a, a love owed you uh, like a husband could be jealous of his wife's wandering or something like that because she is his possession a god could be jealous of the spirit he made to dwell within you mm-hmm. uh, because when you have a possession it's envy is when you didn't have the possession Jealousy is when you do.
1: It, it mm-hmm. seems that envy or has, to, has more to do with stuff than. <coughs> well, it you be
0: envious possession. of a relationship, but it's generally yeah. a relationship you you don't grant that you have or have. You wish you had it. Jealousy, mm-hmm. you you. That was your presumed possession. Okay. Yeah. Psyche was a presumed possession. Um,
3: mm-hmm. is, is, is envy closer to covetousness then? In
2: a way, in a way. Like, yeah, I yeah. I feel like I've seen translations of "Thou shalt not covet," "Thou shalt not be envious." Yeah. Um, I don't know that Lewis is making much of a distinction about jealousy and envy. Yeah. yeah. Um, the the two, at least linguistically, in in English, seem to overlap often in, in common parlance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I noticed that she doesn't care one bit um for what's happened to psyche mm. she's she's curious to know if if the story that the priest is telling concludes with with a with an actual conclusion but his religion is one of sort of a cyclical calendar keeping mm-hmm. and this time of year we do this uh it's just for the myth to serve a uh, a regular religious observance um and not not much about that she only asks about psyche's conclusion to hear how how much further wrong this this story could be and not actually asking about the uh the weeping of psyche you know the Forever wandering of psyche, mm-hmm. and like, is that part true? Uh, you know, mm. she she doesn't really know what happens to psyche afterwards. Psyche disappears, and that's that.
0: Once she once <laughs> she chased down that noise in the garden by the well. Now she knows that it's just the noise of the chains is how does she ignore it? She moves away from it in the palace, tries every part of the palace, mm-hmm. then she walls it in. You know, because it's not... Her task is not psyche and her wanderings. Her task is to stop thinking about
3: it. Mm-hmm. Uh, she seems to... I mean, Orals always in of the story, how she sees it. I... Um, I'm the one who's wrong. I am poor me. I'm a victim in this thing. Uh, Saki doesn't even hold any place in her mind about uh, how she would feel or think or anything. You know, so.
0: We've a couple of sides. The first, Kelly. losing one's virginity. Observation.
1: She made the the losing of the virginity as more of something taken from you mm-hmm. rather than given. Mm-hmm. That comparison makes that mm-hmm.
3: an innocence. Uh, I mean, there's a certain threshold of. Um,
0: well, she, she it's it's that thing of feeling, when well, Bardius says it, where he says that, you know, there's just something not right about sticking a sword into somebody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you kind of got to get over that.
2: Uh, I can't I can't figure that out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> i to quit doing that.
0: Um, uh, but that's the, and then she echoes that there was something. Um, let's see what page that is. Um, Two twenty.
2: I think the the habit of people is when when they are a failure in one area, or is a failure in being marriageable. She has not lost her virginity. Um, that they will replace it. It'll it'll turn into a sour grapes circumstance and say, "Oh, this is just as good as, if not better, because she uses her status as." uh, As a friend of Bardia's, a close friend of Bardia's, um, to sort of have that overshadow his actual marriage. So, Ansett? Ansett, yeah. Ansett has lost her virginity. Orwell has not, but she shames Ansett for um, just being that.
0: Yeah, but I think I think that the combination, when she says, I felt myself changed too, as if something had been taken away from me.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I had often wondered if women feel like that when they lose their virginity. So, her killing a man, she lost something, you know. And she would try to put it together with something else. The whole idea, when she compares her camaraderie with Bardia to Ansett's uh, sleeping with him and burying his children, which were bad and then worse, um, but doesn't have what I have with him. This is something else. This has to do with the killing of somebody. It has to do with how do you, the nature of humanity should feel some sort of barrier about the, about the death, you know. Um, and she does.
3: Uh, is it also possible that or from Oral's perspective... She doesn't look at losing virginity as any sort of a good or positive. There's almost there's such a jealousy about other women who have Oh yeah, when, she,
0: when she's yeah. talking to Psyche earlier in the book, and she tries to shame her for liking the sexuality... Yeah. Yes, um,
3: yes, I mean, that, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, I think she's making a, a false comparison which may be the revealing of Orwell's mind as opposed to Lewis stating his position on it. (laughs) Is
1: is there something of, though, that in killing another man, another person, it is sometimes good and necessary, and sometimes it is not, whereas the loss of virginity is is very much the same. You can lose your virginity in a bad way.
0: But I think I think that... Lord, Lord. That, that What Greg is saying is... Sort of got that... She has the... This goes back to her jealousy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: All of it that occurs... Elsewhere. Ansit and Bardia. Psyche and the God of the Mountain. Knocking boots. Left and right. Losing virginities. Those are unacceptable. Uh, that's slutty behavior. And... But she... She feels it for Bardia when he kisses her hand after the fight. Mm -hmm. When Trini is flirting with her heavily, Mm -hmm. she really gets off on that, you know. She has a dream theater that that functions very easily in that concept of her being married to Bardia and she was the one giving birth and Psyche was the one, you know. Mm -hmm. So it really all is, here is a thing that is only measured good or ill as to whether or not it's if it wasn't the how virginity sits in her mind generally which is i'm ugly no one's ever going to sleep with me uh, i'm never going to have a man so when she imagines having a man when she wants that benefits her she can accept that For anybody else yeah, it's just not um anybody that's close to her that could love her should not have this happen so there's some <laughs> kind of sometimes partial she approves of losing virginities if it's rightly staged doesn't approve of it otherwise but I think here she's primarily just saying a woman feels that she has lost something irretrievable mm-hmm. in a lost virginity good or ill you know marriage or, yeah, or yes. whoring you know uh, but yeah. same is true with killing a man
2: you're different afterwards You've killed somebody. It's a threshold. I mean, I hate to say the word, but innocence is what people commonly refer to. Um, you, you lose innocence through experience. Um, generally, mm-hmm. if, you know, those are important life moments. Sex and murder different um, I'm not sure what else to make of it Did, do we surmise that uh, Lewis has ever uh, stacked a body in he
0: killed yeah a long he time? yeah Uh he was in World War one I. I he got captured about 60 Germans but uh, um, I think there's an assumption that he was you know pulling the trigger he was in the trenches so mm-hmm. I don't um,
2: no, precisely
0: whether
2: or not he does. So, I mean, it, maybe it's not the same as um, sticking a blade into a man. Um, but putting putting distance between you and the man, killing just puts, uh, I guess, the question a little further out. It comes around eventually to kill the man. Yes. Um. And uh, so he, he he's the one who could speak most authoritatively. I don't know if any of us here have killed him. I've killed, I've killed many. I, I, I think Lewis is very convincing when he speaks
3: of these things and these ideas. I mean, whether it's Narnia even, you know, or any of his books. But he, he, um, he, he handles things... Um, Either he's so well-read and immersed in the histories of stuff and people who have been that. And a or he's writer, seen it firsthand. able to pull that out, or he, he, he may know it from the first mm-hmm. but, but he's successful at I mean, he's he's writing as a one who, who who knows
0: the way he talks. Well, it, the interesting thing he she actually describes it that way. Says yes. you, the Greek for whom I write, may never have fought. That was that right. If you did, you fought most likely as a hoplite. So it's not going to be hand to hand. It's going to be spear point to spear point, different kind of thing. So I, I would I would have to have showed you with a stick how I did this. Right. You, you, you know the, the you
3: could, you'd have to like demonstrate understand the whole. As
0: that might be just a writer's device to get you into the mood, because you know, it doesn't describe too many of the actual moves other than there is a, um...
3: And that was brilliantly handled, by the way, by Lewis. He just sort of at the whole thing and just uh, didn't waste needless description.
0: Right. I gave the straight thrust, then all in one motion, wheeled my sword round and cut him deeply in the inner leg. You know, it's, uh... Um, but it, it, it has all of the learning aspects. We've spent quite a few scenes where she is learning this, being trained by this, even up to the last minute, that that she's good at what she does. Bardia says you would kill me. you know, um, So I think that that part of this is her whole world being stacked into an artificiality, Her queenness, her masculinity, her mystery of what what in hell is she? You know, behind the veil, Um, these talents that are unbecoming but still kind of engaging, to create this world, that she sits at the feast after the duel, and what vile things men are! Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one of the I thought a great line. What vile things men are! And trying to. She's trying to find how to get almost get to that place where she hangs out with Fox and Bardia for years afterwards, learning a thousand things about the way men think. Because they didn't think of her as a woman. You know, uh, there, there's there's something... Um, uh, there's something going wrong with Orwell so badly, but so well. Um, oh, by the way, the, the, the Queen... Might have been Tamiris, of the Mascate, the the other warrior queen, um, that had oh, yeah, um, killed potentially Cyrus's Cyrus the Persian. That they um,
1: were, some people attributed to her. her right, yeah.
0: yeah, she was uh, uh, further further east, but uh, and hundreds of years earlier, um, Well, two hundred years earlier, uh, but. Uh, there seems to be a kind of a building of this comfortable world that she doesn't like, but she gains ground in. Uh, but I, I, I did like the, it, it echoed what I saw in that. He strength where ransom is talking to Jane and she says, we call it pride. You are offended by the masculine itself. The loud eruptive yes. possessive thing, the gold lion, the bearded bull which breaks through hedges and scatters the little kingdom of your primness as the dwarves scattered the carefully made bed. So that there is that, she's talking about the way they eat, you know. They're drunk and they're grabbing at the food and throwing the bones. The dogs are going nuts and and she, and she got, got drunk with the men. Um, and all she can do is go to her room and imagine how tragic her tale could be, you know. She she drowns herself in in pathos.
2: Uh. Yeah, I I did appreciate that description of uh, drunkenness. It sounded drunk. I mean, she it, talked yeah. drunk. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it, but it, it turns all yeah. of the awful the things sad that drunk. you've done and have that have d- been done to you as these like noble things. Like everyone's this um, sacrificial character when they're drunk. <laughs> um, yeah. Did you? The, the tales we
1: do? Did you all hear Ecclesiastes in those few pages? Mm. It all became. Uh, didn't didn't use weariness. I don't think, but oh, yeah. just the re- repetition, yeah. repetition of everything. Which yeah.
0: you well, said I did, and I did, and I did, and I did that portion.
1: Yeah. Uh, but was there was even right? more mm-hmm. specifically almost sounded like ecclesiastes.
2: But she's topics. she's lost mm-hmm.
4: her oh the one section right after where after she says it's it's like hearing a stupid boy whistle the same
1: Yes, mhm yeah. I wonder
4: how he isn't
2: driving himself mad. Yeah, the she she doesn't have her identity straightened out. She She's no longer Orwell. She has to... Retreat back into a a, a privacy that... Brings Orwell out of her. But most of her life since she became queen... Is as the queen. And that's a completely different person... Who is also not fleshed out. It's more just um, an office that she's holding. Orwell is someone she does not know she doesn't know herself. Yeah.
0: But, but Orwell's you want to be rid of her because that's where the problem is. Orwell's the problem. The Queen does a great job of queening it. Yeah, no. she's, she's, she's efficient, she's capable, she drowns this this sinful attitude, you know uh, or she locks it up, can't get at it uh, you don't want it to come back. When it ever comes back, it's just awful. Uh, right, and that's the
3: people. Yeah, it, like really like it under her leadership. I mean, uh,
2: what does it matter that I did what I didn't? If sin goes unconfessed, we have ways of putting a mask on, and it can last for years without you realizing it's there. Um,
0: That'd be handy, the idea of the, the veil keeping people free. you got this persona that you're putting on. It'd be much easier if nothing of your expression showed. Mm-hmm. You know, um, guys like wearing sunglasses for I, that reason. Yeah. They, they just they wear their sunglasses. And all the expression that they would have, they look. They can look far you cooler look cool. than they are. Because you don't look... Because people can read your eyes very easily. But... Um, you're and part of that is hiding whatever aura walls in you, the the frightened little boy. Put on some aviators, and off you go to the races. You know, I can brazen my way through. I can I can. Um,
2: She's like the. Um, tragedian. Tragedian. Tragedy. The Tragedian and um, uh, great divorce. Great divorce. Um, because the melodrama of referring to your life, you know, when all, all Orwell really is, is just, a uh, scared, confused, angry child. Um, she's, I imagine, still pretty young by the time Psyche is sacrificed, relatively. Um... <clears throat> and it's not until later that she becomes much more womanly.
0: Um, what do we have in terms of uh, the comments about what the young, younger women imagined behind the veil and what the men imagined behind the veil? The women were all with a monster or faceless. Or the men so beautiful it's got to be world-shaking, you know. Um, is that just another commentary on how generically the problems Orwell has, everyone has, you know, that that uh, the men are going about their business not thinking very much at all about these things. Women drama queens that they are are building story on story on story, so the women have a, a fear of, well, of course, it's not, she's not beautiful. It's got to be something hideous. Yeah,
4: um, they, don't, they don't want to believe that she could be beautiful. I mean, mm-hmm. she's not, but they they don't want to even entertain that. Especially, probably, because all the men think that. And so they're mm-hmm. like, no, no, no. For, for women, they probably see the mask as, like, kind of like how... Or the veil, kind of like how we see makeup. It's like, mm-hmm. well, no woman right. is that beautiful.
0: I've seen makeup that like a veil. I <laughs> oh It's so much. It's like yeah. having canvas then, over your head, face.
4: And then the men are just like it reminded me of like uh the the trope like like oh women will hate you. Men will want to marry you. Like it's like when you have something like mm-hmm. really cool and of value then um yeah.
0: Um what is her outer comment? that gods will for the thing where they will not forgive you as being born, born a woman.
1: Being born a woman, yeah. That sort was, of like, right after she was talking about go- Bardia going back and forth from her to
2: <clears throat> Ansit. It seemed uh, kind of like a second second wave feminism uh, type type claim.
0: So it really comes down to by the time we get to the last section she, I, I, she would have walked a right if she had seen things clearly the gods are supposed to show you things clearly mm-hmm. okay and we were having this witness to a guy last night non-believer here and it was they always want proof absolute proof say, no, I'm giving you this proof for this part, now we're going to watch what you do with that. You know, what do you do, you do anything like, boy, I really would like it if this was, he said, I really want the supernatural to be true, but I just can't believe in the miracles in the Bible. You know, so you want supernatural to be true, but you can't believe in any supernatural happening. You know, um, anytime it was, it's
2: reported, it's like, well, that's doubtful. Yeah, uh,
0: it, it was. It was very interesting that person always chose the skeptical end. Facts could be there. The fact that someone could have added a verse to the Bible that meant you couldn't trust any verse in the Bible. That you know, there's a lot of verses that weren't added to the Bible. They're written there by the guy who wrote it. So why that added verse make you? It's what people do. What she had the vision of the palace, she did not turn that way. She knew she had seen it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: She did not turn that way,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know. And when she saw the god, she did not turn his way.
1: Yeah.
0: You know it. It. It's like
1: wanted to blame afterwards for.
0: But it's all. It's all themselves. this in the last section. It was. Um, what well, she say often though I have seen a God myself, I was near to believing that there are no such things, mm-hmm. you yeah, that's sort of a, a a bit of honesty and admission that no i'm I'm all the th- when I got to see clearly, I didn't handle clearly very well, did I you know um, um. well, it is nine thirty you may go if you wish, otherwise you can. Like something.